0: You're listening to a Tudor and Stuart Ireland conference podcast. The 6th annual Tudor and Stuart Ireland Interdisciplinary Conference took place at NUI Galway in August 2016. The conference was generously supported by an NUI Galway President's Award for Research Excellence to Professor Stephen Ellis, the Moore Institute at NUI Galway, the Discipline of History at NUI Galway, and the Society for Renaissance Studies. As in previous years, the majority of papers were recorded for podcasting by Real Smart Media, in association with UCD's History Hub. There are now more than 140 podcasts from previous Tudor and Stuart Ireland conferences freely available. To access this archive, go to historyhub.ie forward slash podcasts or visit TudorStuartIreland.com. In this episode, a recording of a paper by Professor Raymond Hilton from Virginia Union. His paper was entitled Religio Political Ferment in and Interconnections Between. The Dublin and Port Arlington Huguenot Communities, 1692-1720, to a study in causal determinism.
1: Uh, Dublin and Port Arlington were the two most substantial Huguenot communities established and solidified in the wake of the 1690s Williamite production of Ireland. But they have been primarily studied in isolation. And that's sort of incongruous because with only 40 miles of mainly level ground separating them, neither can be completely understood without some accounting of the interrelationship and interchange that occurred between them and the cause and effect this often brought about. Indeed, they proved to be by far the most closely connected of the French Protestant clusters, by contrast of those in Waterford, Cork, Kilkenny, Carlo, Yal, Lisbon, and smaller concentrations. Privileged of the story is the most influential of the Huguenots, Henri Massieu de Ruvigny, second Marquis de Ruvigny, deputy general of the Con- Reformed churches in France, then Baron Port Arlington, then Viscount, then Earl of Galway. And with him, the military v- veterans who arrived from France and comprised three military infantry regiments, one cavalry squadron, and one squadron of dragoons during the years of conflict from 1688 to 1697. Not as thoroughly noted or studied by earlier sources, but incrementally significant players nonetheless were the mercantile families and the clerical professional families who had a hand in the development of both French Protestant colonies. Now the story of these two communities, contrary to past representation stressing tranquility and commonality, is fraught and to the contrary with dissonance. Grading religious sensibilities, pitting dissenting against conformed Huguenots, return and migration, return migration, and torturous self-reflection on their role both within the larger context of anglophonic milieu and late Stuart Ireland as a whole. The question thus arises as to whether or not or to what extent events and personalities within these two communities played upon each other uh, as the immigrants confronted these challenges. Contrasts between the two colonies are glaring of course as the governmental and commercial hub Dublin was always the most powerful magnet for immigrants. and a noteworthy Perhaps even substantial Huguenot population existed there as early as the 1660s, with certain significant individuals arriving long prior to this. Port Arlington was, countrywise, a transplant colony, an artificial creation which, if not imposed into a total void, came very close to it. But to take Port Arlington first, the borough of Port Arlington, situated along a bend of the River Barrow, takes in land from adjoining counties of Leech and Offaly, and originated in a grant of forfeited O'Dempsey land by King Charles II on the 27th of July, 1666, to Henry Bennett, uh, Baron Arlington. Uh, Bennett is said to have constructed dwellings and a small riverside quay and even a glassworks. It became, uh, was created Earl of Arlington in 1672, and from him the grant passed by purchase to Sir Patrick Trant. Trant, as a proactive Jacobite, was attainted for treason on 26 April 1689, and his holdings declared forfeit to the crown. Now, from 1692 to 1693, in a move that would generate controversy and parliamentary action seven years later, King William granted massive forfeiture of our Irish lands to favourite, among them his alleged mistress, Elizabeth Villiers Hamilton, Countess of Orkney, and including. An incustodium allocation of a Trent forfeiture to his main Huguenot favorite, the same Henri Massieu, Marquis de Ruvigny, on whom was bestowed the titles Baron Port Arlington and Viscount Galway on 2nd March 1692. One of Lord Galway's priorities was to provide, uh, I'll call Ruvigny Lord Galway from here on in. Uh, one of his uh, priorities was to provide for the Huguenot veterans who had served under his command during the Williamite reduction of Ireland and who were retired on half-paid in the Irish establishment. After the Treaty of Briswick ending the War of the League of Augsburg in 1697, this was expanded to include the veterans who had been subordinate in Flanders and Savoy. And to this end, Lord Galway negotiated as favorable a set of terms as he could obtain through personal entreaties to place his veterans on the establishment and one of the most enjoyable parts of uh, of researching this is seeing all his letters in the British library in the additional manuscript and seeing how he manipulated how he pled how he uh, uh, you know really played on the sympathies how he name dropped in order to get his veterans as favorable condition as possible he was a slick operator definitely it's it was a pleasure uh, looking through that But he was enormously successful, and he ultimately uh, secured permanent status for his grant on 26 June 1696. And on 12 May 1697, he was made Earl of Galway and at the same day appointed Lord Justice of Ireland and served in that capacity for the first time till 1701. But talking about ferment, religion, of course, is paramount. And that was the whole reason for the Huguenot dispersion. The dispersion of the Huguenots was not so much an immigration in search of a positive material good. It was one of flight from what had deteriorated into a highly negative situation in France. The Huguenots were staunch French Calvinists and they were Frenchmen first who much preferred to remain in France, and who for the greater part were in a reasonably comfortable position in their own country, materially speaking. The economic incentive to depart was very slight. Indeed, migration to Britain and Ireland meant for a majority of these refugees, financial loss, uncertainty as to employment and income, and reliance on the charity of sympathetic hosts. And they could have had all that if they had only kind of converted to Catholicism. But, of course, that was a matter of conscience. Now, charity of sympathetic hosts. Now, this last could be a little bit chancy, given that the concept of charitable assistance for displaced persons was a new one. In fact, the term refugee had only been coined in 1681, and that was... The Huguenots, in reference to the Huguenots themselves, uh, uh, immigrating in the beginning of the persecution that ended in the revocation of the Edict of Nantes, uh, uh, it was an idea that had to be aggressively prop- prop- propagandized. Uh, the idea of charity itself was as uh, a very new, much depended on individual donors. In fact, the royal bounty in England, amounting to 15,000 pounds from 1696, was the first truly organized state charity of any appreciable size in the kingdom. Uh, Freedom to practice their religion was a primary objective then, and most Huguenots actually saw their exile as a temporary penance at worst. Uh, They had no intention of this being permanent. Some even adopted an apocalyptic view of King Louis XIV abandoning the beastly doctrines of popery, or at least moderating his views, so that Huguenots could one day return to a purified France and the transformation of the kingdom from Babylon to New Jerusalem could proceed accordingly. Most entertained the hopes that this could happen within their lifetime, and the literature. Uh, of that effect proliferated throughout Britain and Ireland. Now, it is only within this context that the relationship between the two Calvinist, French Calvinist communities that existed in exile can be properly evaluated. And, of course, I'm talking about the conformed community and the non-conformed community. Uh, In the with an understanding of the religious antagonisms that play within the Huguenot dispersion and its crucial role in the development of these enclaves. For the larger percentage of refugees, both in Dublin and Port Arlington, the necessity lay in the fidelity to the pure, unadulterated Calvinist worship as they had known it in France, to which, of course, a triumphant return was momentarily imminent. I suppose it was the philosophy, one of the most quoted scriptures was that "He that endures to the end shall be saved. Uh, on the other hand, there were those within the French Protestant community, uh, a large minority, who saw the advantages, if not the necessity, of accommodating to the preferences of their powerful Protestant Anglophonic neighbors, who were, after all, in much the dominant position and this could be done by simply conforming to the Anglican communion. It was argued, too, that this would present a common front against the Catholic behemoth that were standing opposite them on all sides. Now, nonconformity, though, really got a boost. It was much encouraged by the Irish Parliamentary Act of 1692 for encouraging Protestant strangers to settle and plant in France. The strongly worded clause, quote, "All strangers and foreigners who shall at any time take the oaths and subscribe to the declaration herein above mentioned shall enjoy free exercise of their religion and have the liberty of meeting together publicly for the worship of God and hearing divine services and p- performing other religious duties in their own several rites used in their own countries. Any law or statute to the contrary notwithstanding gave freer reign to dissent than had hitherto been granted. Of course, there was a rethinking, there was a backlash from the Anglican establishment fairly soon. In 1695, refugees were encouraged to conform in order to obtain pensions. And the 1692 uh, act was not renewed in 1697. But what had happened was that the proverbial cat had been let out of the bag and Huguenot dissent was now firmly and permanently established. Thus, religious factionalism and unease became an undeniable part of life of the Huguenots in exile, whether in England, Ireland, or even North America. Now this is a question which has been ignored, underplayed, and dismissed for roughly two centuries, at least until 1985. The fact is that the fissure within the Huguenot community over the question of conformity to the Anglican communion was a very tangible one, and sometimes, often, I'd say, acrimonious. Now why did this historical cover-up occur? One strong explanation lies in the usage of the Huguenots uh, at various epochs by antiquarians and even historians for contemporary political purposes or personal agenda, or as we'd say in the states, political footballs. By way of example, it was advantageous for Anglophiles and those married to the Protestant interest, however that was defined at the time, To promote the image of the uh, harmonious, thrifty, assiduous community, worthy of emulations, putting the Huguenots on a pedestal. Any hint of intra community strife would tend to diminish this role model ideal. Now, while the rift between uh, dissenters and their more accommodationist brethren in the Huguenot community, was not so serious that they could not unite against the common threat of Catholicism or cooperate on non-controversial matters. The breach was nonetheless emphatic and enduring. In Dublin, the controversy had been endemic, muted for long periods and bubbling to the surface until it was fully defined in 1693. To summarize, in 1665, to go back, an attempt was made by the first Duke of Ormond to institutionalize the small but growing Huguenot community in Dublin into the Anglican fold. The Lady Chapel in St. Patrick's Cathedral was reserved for worship in French. The congregation, which would be commonly known as French Patricks, was permitted uh, the continuous of, it, of its Calvinist church governance under the consistory of elders, Uh, on condition of submission to Episcopal control, in this case, the Archbishop of Dublin, and mandatory usage of Jean Durel's French translation of the Book of Common Prayer. A French pastor was provided and at first supported through pluralism of benefices. And this was a system that worked very, very poorly, uh, but would be superseded by a set stipend. Now, despite this elaborate arrangement, uh, and uh, attempt to integrate the French Protestant immigrant, uh, dissenting nonconformist sentiment had set in at least as early as 1672, and in 1683, Ormond, acting through his de- son and deputy Lord Aaron, was forced to f- forcefully break up conventicles of Huguenot dissenters who were seeking to be united with Anglophonic uh, Presbyterians and two Huguenot members of Dublin City Council, uh, Jean and Louis Minier, who had both served terms as the Lord Mayor of Dublin, were for a while denounced and suspended from the council for suspected nonconformity. Then, in 1692, following the Williamite victory, and in the midst of an unprecedented surge of Huguenot immigration into Ireland, a schism occurred within the French Patrick's congregation between the supporters of two rival pastors. This was at first personal, but was followed, perhaps consequentially, by the open establishment of a non-conformed Huguenot temple, as they call their churches, on Bride Street in 1693. Uh, Lord Galway himself attempted to reunite all the Huguenot worshipers under the Anglican umbrella, wrote up a formula, but failed. The conformists Voted for it, but the nonconformists voted un- almost unanimously against it, and the rent became permanent. By 1701, there were two conformed French churches operating in the capital: Saint Patrick and Saint Mary's on the north side near Saint Mary's Abbey, and two dissenting ones: uh, Bride Street, uh, later moved to Peter Street, and Lucy Lane. Now in Port Arlington. Uh, which, as I mentioned, was an artificial creation, creation of Lord Galway. He did much more than just politic and negotiate for the greatest financial advantage for his veterans, but he dug into his own pocket to finance the construction of anywhere to between 100 and 150 dwellings for them, plus a French church, an English church, a French school, and a classical school. The first leases at Port Arlington date to 1692 and reveal that he actually held the fee simple even prior to the in-custodium grant. Leases were drawn up on rents described as nominal for the terms of three individual lifetimes, renewable on perpetuity upon payment of a renewal fee. Uh, the nominal rent would be appropriate to most of uh, the refugees' fixed incomes. From 1692 to 1703, the Huguenot colony at Port Arlington experienced growth at first moderate and after 1697 more rapid, until the resumption and confessional crisis of 1702 contributed to a demographic downturn which would only settle into equilibrium around 1720. In The early years to 1703, three major groups of individual colonizers can be discerned. First, the veterans pensioned off after the Treaty of Limerick from 1692. Then later on, those veterans discharged and likewise retired to half pay after the 1697 Peace of Reiswick. Then all during the 1690s, a contingent of farmers, merchants, professionals, and artisans from the Dauphiné region, uh, a relic of the partially realized colonization program in which both Galway and King William had a hand. French services at the Protestant Church of the Huguenot Church at Port Arlington began no later than the 3rd of June 1694 when the first church register entry was penned by Pastor Jacques Gillet. Gillet, who officiated from 1694 to 1698 and his successor, Benjamin de Dayon, Sur de la Livrie, ministered the congregation on very strict Calvinist lines. tradition. Nostalgia, fidelity to the old ways were stressed time and again in the register. The common refrain is, suivant la discipline et la forme ancienne et ordinaire de nos églises en France, adhering to the old forms and procedures of our churches in France. This is consistently and constantly emphasized and hammered again and again in the French church registries. Illustrative to the point made earlier on, it was not uncommon. Uh, for the Huguenots to view their sojourn in Ireland uh, or almost any other European refuge as being transitory. Uh, at least among the Huguenot settlers, there lingered the vision of a France which if not cleansed from Roman errors, would one day be willing to accept them as they were. Then the resumption and confessional crisis occurred and it had its genesis in a political struggle taking shape at Westminster. The Whig junto favorable to King William lost power and uh, at question was the issue governing the king's right to grant forfeitures. In the instance of King William's grants, there arose the original complication of resentment against foreign favorites and the perceived impropriety of grants to a royal mistress. and the view of William as an interloper who had the crown only on occasion of his marriage to Queen Mary II, who had been inconsiderate enough to have died in 1694, leaving William to take all the heat now. But uh, the Commission of Irish Forfeitures issued a negative report in 1699, and that led to the parliamentary adoption of the Act of Resumption of 1700 to nullify Lord Galway's grants and leases, leaving the Port Arlington settlers liable for dispossession. But the Huguenots had their champions. Now, as the very shocked and very indignant anonymous author of the pamphlet, Us Regium, or the King's Right to Grant Forfeiture, said, I can't but take notice of the deplorable conditions of the poor French Protestants at Port Arlington. Those poor people built about 130 new tenements. Actually, Lord, Lord Galway built them. Uh, these tenements must now become the habitation of Irish Papists. But as the debate over the measure was unfolding, Coming like the white knight to the rescue was Thomas Lindsay, Anglican Bishop of Killaloo. He proposed an amendment that purported to offer relief to the Huguenot refugees at Port Arlington, making them an exception to the rule, and it was passed on 25th of May, 1702, confirming the colonists in the security of their leases. But... Lindsay's initiative was not completely altruistic and held a double edged motive in that the bill assigned his close friend and colleague, Bishop William Morton of Kildare, authority over the two churches and schools, authority over the salaries of both ministers, and the prerogative to appoint ministers and schoolmasters. It happened very quickly. In keeping with his reputation as a high church prelate and former Jacobite, Morton wasted little time in applying his newly granted power to quell dissent and to reestablish the Port Arlington Church among conformist lines. He even went so far as to publish a French translation of the Anglican rite of church consecration to disseminate among the heads of families. And it seemed that uh, it was a fait accompli, but it did not proceed as easily as he might have hoped. Bishop Dayon actually had the temerity to bristle at Morton's heavy-handed methods, and a six-year system would bitterly divide the congregation. Uh, over a hundred households, roughly half the congregation siding with Dayon, and the other half embracing Morton's version of conformity under his hand-picked minister, Antoine Ligonier de Bonneval. From 1702 to 1708, with Dion maintaining his hold as moderator of the consistory of elders, the Port Arlington colony was fractured and in the end much reduced by return migration to Dublin, and at least in the case of Dion and perhaps others to Carlo, uh, where a nonconformist church had been established and where he officiated until his death in 1710. The roles of the French nonconformist Church of Lucy Lane, which was, was colloquially called French Lucy's, and Peter Street, colloquially called French Peters on Dublin's north and south side, respectively, list 16 former Port Arlington families in the years after 1703, especially after 1710. Arnoux, Bonin, Esperia, Fontbonne, Aubert, Terrisse, and Vigneur are designed as laboureurs. Olivier is a master carpenter, Baigneux de Villeneuve, Fouard de Toucheron, Massilo, Pelisier Lantillac, and Gouverneur from the Minor Nobility. A schoolmaster, Etienne Durand, apparently believed in playing both sides of the of the of the, of the fence because he figures both actively in both the conformed and non conformed congregation. Now there were other factors involved in the Port Arlington colony's democratic demographic downturn uh, The indifferent quality of the soil regards agriculture, dislocated families attending upon the outbreak of the War of the Spanish Succession when many of the younger, more physically fit veterans were called to service. But the coincidence and timing and the evidence of the individual opting for worship at the non-conformist French churches point to the religious issue weighing more heavily than the others. Tellingly, the deposition of Pastor Dion in the beginning marked the beginning of the schism, a point of departure. From 1703, continuing to 1720, the French population dramatically declined, with families abruptly disappearing from the registers. Altogether, six, 67 French surnames vanished from the Port Arlington settlement during the 17 years of question. The best interpretation of extant da- data would show, most likely underestimations, for 1695, 59 family surnames, 185 individuals, 1699, 101 surnames and 387 individuals, 1703, 169 surnames, 450 individuals, 1710. Uh, 159 surnames, 409 individuals, and then a dramatic drop in 1715, 91 surnames, 226 individuals. In 1720, 75 surnames and 205 individuals. A late influx in 1725 to 1731 saw at least 15 new families arriving in the Midland settlement, but after this modest population served, the French community reached its acceptable level. The usage of the French language and the Huguenot uh, identity among a dwindling number of residents is alleged to have tarried there longer than anywhere else in Ireland. By 1850, when antiquarians began to seriously unearth and publish information, this had almost vanished and the gilded legend of the Irish Athens came about. This was because of Port Arlington, allegedly because of Port Arlington's famed French and classical schools. And the idyllic image of, quote, "The sylvan retreat in the placid waters of the River Barrow." Uh, images of street lines with streets lined with jargonel pear trees, Italian walnuts and primeval oaks, and retired French officers gathering in the town squares in their scarlet cloak, silver knee buckles uh, uh, kind of lined with diamonds, uh, and their swords sipping. Tiny cups of tea savoring them uh, had already taken a life of its own. It was a legend which, for a long time, obscured the reality of those challenging, certainly stressful years of the late Stuart era. The Huguenots in Dublin, on the hand, also endured their worst uh, years of their own conformist nonconformist c- conflict during the first two decades of the eighteenth century. The Fort Church competition uh, even entered a period of increased complication through this temporary secession of the conformed Church of St. Mary's from 1705 to 1716. This last, however, seemed to be more personally and politically inspired with religious differences playing a peripheral role. Pastor Pierre Pesey de Galiniere of St. Mary's, angered at being passed over for a more lucrative pastoral post at the French Church of St. Patrick, even though he had greater seniority than his competitors, secured his congregation's support in declaring St. Mary's independence. And it was quite a curious arrangement with St. Mary's going a separate route, let insisting on remaining a conformed church Though consistently ignoring the Archbishop of Dublin's directive and entreaties for reconciliation, de Galignere even attempted to break the stalemate by threatening to unite with the nonconformist Lucy Lane congregation, eliciting some very unchristian like responses from some of his fellow Huguenot adversaries. In the event de Gallinier's blackmail proved successful, and on 1 May 1716, 6, Articles of Union were negotiated and approved and St. Mary's and St. Patrick's were reunited and under one consistory. Perhaps fittingly, Lord Galway, who had retired as Lord Justin, returned as Lord Justice in 1715, drew up the article and succeeded where he had failed uh, 22 years earlier. But though the conformed churches came back together, the chasm between them and the non churches endured. Only the weathering effect of time and assimilation ended the division. St. Mary's merged into St. Patrick in 1740. In 1773, Lucy Lane merged into the Peter Street Church. And in 1814 and 1816, respectively, French Peters and French Patricks closed their doors for good, only then ending the controversy. Thank you.
0: Thank you for listening to this Tudor and Stuart Ireland conference podcast. If you would like to access the archive of more than 140 podcasts from previous Tudor and Stuart Ireland conferences, please go to historyhub.ie forward slash podcasts. All podcasts are freely available on iTunes and on SoundCloud. For more information on the annual Tudor and Stuart Ireland Interdisciplinary Conference, visit the conference website at tudorstuartireland.com.